We are busy with a series in Philippians. We have been here for some time, but we are moving quickly towards the end. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Um, I'm going to look at verse 8 and 9 this morning. But before I do that, I want to do a bit of a recap with you. Because the three verses um, in Philippians 4, 4 to 9, are, um, 4 to 7, dovetail and set this beautiful foundation for what follows in verse 8 to 9. So in verse, you won't get this if you're looking at the screen. I hope you've got your Bibles and you're looking in your Bibles. In verse 4, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And a wonderful reminder from Bryce last week, Jesus is your greatest joy, church. And he is always with you. Always includes the best and the worst of times. And remember, Paul is an example to us. He's the apostle. He's out in front. He's, he doesn't do what some preachers do. Some preachers are very good at telling you the right things to do, and then living um, up to that can be quite challenging, and I'd say that as a preacher. Paul's not like that. When Paul teaches us something, he's doing it, and we're going to get reminded in this text today in verse 9, he's saying once again, what you see in me. So when Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, guess what he is doing in that dark, dingy prison cell? He's rejoicing. Those jail bars might keep him from many things, but it can't keep him from Jesus. Jesus is in there with Paul, and at that, Paul rejoices. And he's emphatic because he repeats the instruction. And this is not some fake pretense of rejoicing, some fake positive thinking that delusionally misses the painful realities we often find ourselves in. How do I know that? Because in chapter 3, again, if you've got your Bibles, you can look. It won't be on the screen. In chapter 3, verse... Uh, um, why am I losing it? 18... He says, as I have often told you, and now, now, right now, as I write this letter, tell you even with tears. This letter is tear-stained because Paul feels so deeply and passionately for the church that he's writing to. He's got a deep anguish in his soul. The pages might be stained with tears, but for the believer, there is a deeper reality than even those circumstances that bring us to tears. Jesus is ours, and he is never leaving us. Rejoice. But even as Paul revels in that great truth that Jesus is always his, he realizes that there will be hindrances to our joy. And anxiety is foremost. Bryce didn't do this last week. I was so glad because originally I thought I was preaching on the three verses that Bryce preached on. So I did a bit of research on this word anxiety. The Greek word used here is, I'm going to totally butcher it, 
but merim now. And it is derived from meris, which means to part or to turn from. And the verb merizo means to distract, to divide, to pull apart in different directions. This is exactly what anxiety does to us. It distracts us from our joy in Christ. It pulls us in multiple directions, leaving us feeling out of control in any of them. And what is Paul's antidote? He says, we center ourselves on Jesus again through prayer. We talk to God about everything that is making us anxious. And then we give it to him and trust that what is out of our control is not out of his. And I'm reminded of Mariki standing here a couple weeks ago and sharing, she held up a matchbox and she said at Live Ladies, uh, they were encouraged to write down some of their cares and concerns and worries in that matchbox and give it to the Lord. And there was a lady at her table who said, I'm going to need a bigger thing than a matchbox. And sometimes it can feel like that when we bring our anxieties to God. It can feel like we are bringing a lot. But we must remember who we're bringing it to. He can take it. He can take it all. And it won't throw him off kilter, not even for one second. Which is why he can give us his peace when we do that. And that's a promise, by the way. He promises to give you his peace when you truly relinquish control of what is making you anxious. Now that's a process. I'm not saying we can do that in one prayer, in one moment, but I know there's some of you who've realized that this word we just read is true. You can look back. It's a long feedback loop, by the way. Right? Sometimes we try to have... Um, our feedback loops too short. That means we want to test something. Is this true? And because I don't feel better in this moment, we doubt if God's word is true. The, that's too short of a feedback loop when you expect it immediately. A better way is to look back over your life and see, has God been faithful with his peace as you have learned to trust him with things that used to cause you anxiety? And you will find that his word is true. He can handle it, and he gives you that peace to confirm that truth. It reminds me of a time at George Randall. I was in charge of the textbooks, and on the last day of school, when everyone else gets to go home at 11 a.m., I'm not bitter at all. This happened eight years ago, nine, ten years ago. When everyone else gets to go home at 11 a.m., an email comes through from the education department saying, Treasury will pay for any textbooks that you order with one catch. You must submit your orders written out. There's no such thing as emails or technology when you're dealing with the education department. Write out your textbook orders and submit your orders by tomorrow. 
I'll remind you, it's the last day of school. The email has arrived at 10.59. Everyone else is packed up and already in their cars and driving off. And I get summoned into the principal's office, and the principal says to me, Mark, can you, we need textbooks, so can you work on this today? And I said to him, sir, what are the chances of them actually submitting the order that I'm going to write out and us actually receiving any benefit back from this? Really, it's too late, sir. I want to go home. Mark, I'll leave the decision to you. It was, it's so manipulative. <laughs> because I'm high responsibility. And so as I walk back to, and I think he knew, probably had a twinkle in his eye, walked back to my classroom, sat down with this work of taking each textbook and the ISBN number, which is about 300 digits long, and handwriting this in. I finished at 9 p.m. Not for one moment did I believe any of this was actually going to work. I just did it. I ordered a new textbook for every single subject, every single grade. The next day, I drove out to the education department and I got into a line with the other poor sods in charge of textbooks. And Sterling Primary were standing in front of me, and I can't remember who was in front of them. So I tapped the man on the shoulder and I said, how long did it take you to work on this yesterday? And he said, oh, five minutes. And my heart sank. Because I wondered if I was a fool. I then asked the guy in front of him, how long did you take to work on this yesterday? He said, five minutes. When we got to the counter, the first school submitted their one page, asking for 5,000 rands worth of one book. We didn't believe this was going to happen anyway. So why spend so much time on it? Got an immediate stamp, and off he went. Sterling, 5,000 Rand, order this one book. Let's see if this thing happens. Immediate stamp, off he went. Up comes George Randall. <laughs> I dumped a file on his desk. I said, I want 250,000 Rand worth of textbooks, sir. And for the first time, the man looked up and he went, excuse me? <laughs> And I said, sir, I want 250,000 rand worth of textbooks. He, it took him 30 minutes to um, receive my order. Many sighs behind me. And six months later, every single one of those textbooks arrived. Treasury were true to their word. Matchbox, meat, warehouse. <laughs> and when I thought of that story, I thought of this murky story, and I want to say this to you. Friends, when you come to God with your warehouse of worries, know that you come to someone greater than National Treasury, and he is always true to his word. 
if we truly give our burdens to him, which can be a process, then he promises his peace, which will guard our hearts and minds. That word guard implies that our minds are subject to attack. The peace comes from God and it stands guard as our minds come under attack, which leads me to the title of today's sermon, which is The Battle of the Mind or The Battlefield of the Mind. Not sure how I wrote it in the um, PowerPoint. And let's read Philippians 4, 8-9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I've got three short points. The first one is, Our minds are powerful. Here are a few thoughts to get your juices flowing. The average person has between five to 60,000 thoughts a day. Some of you are 5,000 category, and some of you in the 60,000. The 5,000 category are the vacant stare people, right? You know, the ones staring off into the distance. They're having 5,000 thoughts a day. Some of you more, you know, intense people are having 60,000 thoughts a day. That's like one every two seconds, a different thought. Um, It's an incredibly powerful machine, a mind, that can think that much and have that many different thoughts in one day. And I learned this through the great theologian, Pierce Morgan, um, not a theologian at all, by the way. Um, and uh, he, he had Richard Dawkins on his set um, hosting some show. And uh, Piers Morgan da- does say that he's a believer in God. He holds to his Roman Catholic tradition. And he's quite aggressive with Richard Dawkins. And he says, uh, Richard, um, what happens before the Big Bang? And Richard Dawkins says, well, we don't know. Nothing. And um, Piers Morgan says, our brains can't, and this is philosophical, and I've had to do some work on this, and it's like, do not Google the problem of nothing. Okay? It will keep you busy forever. And Piers Morgan says, there's a problem with nothing, Richard, and you know it. Our brains can't even think of nothing. So how can you propose an idea that there's nothing before something? And, and Richard Dawkins floundered beautifully. He had no answer for that. And it's, I've spent some time thinking about this. Our brains can't even conceive of nothing. Now, I know some of you women out there are going, but I've w- watched that, uh, that counseling funny show where they talk about the dude sitting in his nothing box. I'm going to give you a clue <laughs> about this nothing box. This is what my nothing box looks like. It looks like me sitting on a couch thinking about all the things I'm not going to do now. That's not nothing. It's me relaxing from doing. All right? The brain can't think of nothing. It's too powerful for that. It is always busy going after something and thinking about something. 
You can't have, by the way, a great uh, argument for God. You can't have nothing that leads to something. It's impossible. The human mind finds it far easier to believe there's an eternal God than it is that there was once nothing. Fascinating. Our minds are powerful. Tens of thousands of thoughts every day. Some of them negative. And I don't think you can switch that off. I don't think you can go a whole day thinking just positive thoughts. Even healthy-minded people will have hundreds of negative thoughts in a day. Those of us struggling with depression, that multiplies. Three, four times those negative thoughts rising up can be quite difficult to manage this powerful mind. Just imagine if your thoughts were projected for the world to see. Imagine on the screen right now. Matt Johnson, what he's actually thinking. Mark Wood, what I'm actually thinking. I think we would struggle to have many friends left. <laughs> Growing up, we've learned to not say the things we think. It's part of social having friends. Kids don't have this yet. You're right? So they will say everything just as it is. But as they grow up, they learn, oops, don't say that. Thank goodness that's just up here. Socially, we choose to keep many of our thoughts private, and so we should. Gents, you do not want to read your spouse's diary. Let me save you from that. I've made that mistake. <laughs> you will think, oh, you're going to read things about how wonderful you are. And you will soon be leveled. That is their private thought space. And you won't come out of reading that feeling as rosy about yourself as you do right now. So stay away. Our minds are constantly bombarded by thoughts. Many of those can be negative. My second point is our minds are vulnerable. So they might be powerful, but there's another real truth with our minds. They are vulnerable. We're not as free in our thinking as we like to think that we are. And the world has caught on to this and is quite good at highly, highly suggesting what they want you to gear your mind towards and to think about. Satan himself is sowing lies into your mind all the time. Your mind is powerful, never switches off, but it is vulnerable. That's why you need God's peace to stand God. If some of you think, no, I don't think my mind's so vulnerable, I'll do a little thought experiment with you right now. Okay, let's try something. Try your best not to think of a pink elephant. Should be easy, right? Because first of all, they don't exist. You've never seen one before. You're still not thinking of a pink elephant, right? Stop thinking of a pink elephant. You can't do it. You can't tell the mind what not to do. You can't. It will do the thing that you're thinking about. It will do that, even if you tell it. In the negative, you can't tell the mind what not to do. I watched someone say, how do you think the, the skiers, professional skiers, go through uh, the woods in the snow and not hit a tree? The non-professional skiers go through the woods like this. Don't hit the tree, don't hit the tree, don't hit the tree. And you, hit, you will see all the trees and you'll hit one of them eventually. Do you know what the professional does? Follow the path. 
Follow the path. Keeps the mind focused on the path. Don't, not even aware of the trees. Follow the path. When something is suggested, the mind follows. Fifteen prominent college professors, I got this from Adrian Rogers, fifteen prominent college professors took this challenge. Here it is. They worked in the field of human psychology and motivation, and they were challenged. If all the books on the art of moving human beings into action were condensed into one brief statement, what would that statement be? That is, if you were to take all of these motivational books, all of these things that are going to show people how to motivate other people or to be motivated themselves, what would that statement be? Now they deliberated. They pulled their resources and their minds. They wrote and they rewrote the statement. And this is what these 15 prominent professors came up with. Are you ready? They said this. What the mind attends to it considers. Wow, that's deep. <laughs> what the mind attends to, it considers. Well, what does that mean? It means if you hear something or if you think about something, you've got to consider it. When you give your attention to it, you're going to consider it, no matter what it is. What the mind attends to, it considers. Now, secondly, what it does not attend to, it, it dismisses. If you do not keep your mind on it, you're going to lose it. There's no way to hold it without keeping your mind on it. What the mind attends to, it considers. What it does not attend to, it dismisses. And here's the most powerful statement from Adrian Rogers' paragraph. What the mind attends to continually, it believes. I have a friend, grew up Christian, read his Bible lots. The older he got, the more... Um, interested in science he got, and the more the Bible got put down for New Scientist magazines. And suddenly the conversation stopped being around Christianity and God and started being more around science and what science could do. And today he is an atheist. And at one point I warned him and I said to him, be careful which dog you feed. There's nothing wrong with science, by the way, but if all you do is focus on science to the detriment of your spiritual walk with God, then eventually you're going to find yourself believing what you continually attend your mind to. He does not believe Jesus is who he says he is anymore. Be careful of that, guys. Your mind is vulnerable. Remember that phrase. And what it attends to, it considers. What it attends to continually, it believes. What is your mind? attending to the most. This is why Paul is spending time attending to what we think about. This whole verse 8 is talking about what you think about. He says, think about what is true. Why do we have to think about what is true? Because the enemy is sowing lies and trying to get our minds to attend to them long enough to believe them. I've got three lies. There's millions. But I prayed about this, and these were the three I felt were for this audience today. These are three common lies. I believe all of you have thought at one point. Some of you might be thinking now. Some of you might have been thinking this for too long. 
which means you believe it. First lie from the enemy is, I am alone. Have you ever had that thought? And how long have you held it? Hours? Days? Weeks? Months? Years? If you are a follower of Christ here this morning, then this thought is a lie from the pit of hell. And you need to send it straight back where it came from. And how do you do that? Jesus showed us when he was being tempted in the desert, when he was physically at his weakest, the enemy came to attack his mind. And the enemy tried to get him to sin. And every time Jesus fought back with what? God's word. How do you fight that lie? Some of you believe very strongly that you're alone. You fight it with God's word. I've got one verse on the screen and one verse you're going to have to write down. The first one on the screen that I go to when I think of I'm alone. Deuteronomy 31 verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. You know what I say out loud when I have the thought I'm alone? He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. I believe it. I still have to battle that thought because my mind's vulnerable. Here's another one. Beautiful. Psalm 139 verse 5. You'll know it quite well. When you're alone, read this and say this out loud. When you feel alone, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Later on in that psalm, David says, where can I flee from you? Even if I try to get away from you, where can I get away from you? I can't get away from you. That's a bad thing for God's enemies. That's a great truth for God's people. You fight that lie with the truth. You do what Paul says, whatever is true. You think about that. You attend to that. You use God's word. You read it. You believe it. You say it out loud. God plus one is a majority. Wonderful truth. God plus one. Even if there is no one else, even if it's just you and God, you are in the majority. You are never outnumbered when God's on your side. And you are never just God plus one. God's always faithful to send his people to come and comfort and encourage and support you in your time of need. Second lie that I think is common. No one can help me. It's quite similar to the I am alone lie, but it focuses more on you being in need and believing no one's coming to help. I know a young man who um, was struggling with pornography and wanted to come right, and so he went to his dad. He was 17 years old. He went to his dad, and he said, Dad, can you please change the passwords on the um, uh, computer? 
and can you uh, put restrictions on the uh, satellite and change those passwords? Please, I'm struggling. I'm being honest with you. Um, I just need your help. Can you put these boundaries in place for me? His dad didn't do any of the things he asked. And the enemy came and lied to him. And that lie was, no one's coming to help you. You're on your own. Have you ever needed help? Have you ever reached out for help to the right person who should have come through and they dropped you? Did the enemy sow a seed in that moment, a lie in that moment? No one can help you. When that young man was 25, he met someone who did help him. And today, he is ministering in this area of sexual impurity to young men. And God is using him powerfully to set free hundreds of people. There was a short time where he believed this lie. No one can help me. When he finally got help, that lie had to get undone. It was one of the things he had to choose to stop believing. And you know where you go in God's word for this one? Oh, it's a beautiful scripture. Anita wrote it up on the board in our house when my life went into chaos in June last year. I couldn't even pick up my Bible to read. And every day um, for supper, lunch, breakfast, whenever we were there on the weekends, it would be all three during the week, one, one meal. And I was struggling to even get God's word in. I was under such attack. And there on the, screen, uh, on the chalkboard where she had written it, she didn't know, she wrote this verse on, down before we had a bomb go off in our lives. And Psalm 121, verse 1 and 2 says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And every day I read that, I knew God was speaking to me through that chalk written on that board. Mark, you feel alone? You feel like there's no help coming? You believe the truth. Your help comes from me. And how big am I? I'm the maker of heaven and earth. I can handle it. I can do something about it. And it might not happen in that day. It didn't happen for me on that day. It didn't happen for me on that week or even in the next few months. But I can stand here a year after a long feedback loop, a year and a half later and say to you, he has been faithful to his word. He is our help. Psalm 46 verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. These are the truths you attend your mind to. This is what you set your mind on and you think about. This is what Paul's saying. Whatever is true, think about that. The last lie is probably the biggest one. And it's the biggest lie because nothing could be further from the truth. And um, uh, we sang about it, um, forgetting her name all of a sudden, Debbie. Debbie read this verse. Here's the lie. God doesn't love me. It's the biggest lie. Because no one loves you more 
And God can't love you more than he already does. So to have that thought, God doesn't love me, which I think is quite common. I'm not belittling you for having that thought. We have that thought. You have to know when you have that thought. That's a lie from Satan. That is not true. It's the exact opposite of truth. That's why he's the father of lies. Nothing can change that truth. And where do you go to fight this lie? We sang it this morning. We read it this morning. You highlight this verse. You memorize it. You put it up everywhere you can to keep you thinking about it. Don't fight it being familiar so that you don't think about it. Because when something's familiar, our brains stop thinking about it. But it's Romans chapter 8, 38 to 39. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what I've learned that's quite funny? Is Satan's lies end up backfiring on him. Because I end up doubling down on the thing that God wants me to believe the most. You do love me. And if he says you don't, then I know you do. And this is my final point for this morning. As much as your mind is vulnerable, and this world is after it, okay, you just need to watch social dilemmas or put some thought to it. Your mind is constantly being crafted. Because it's so suggestible, it's easy to get at you and to change how you think about things. And the world's trying to do that intentionally. You are being chased, marketed after. I once sat with an IT expert, and um, he uh, laughed, but he said, Mark, you don't have anything protecting you on this computer. And he didn't mean the normal protection software. He had weird stuff. I can't even remember. I didn't care. He just showed me. He said, look, I'll show you on my computer how many things are after me every site I'm on. And it was in the hundreds of things coming, tracking, following and I see someone who knows more than me smiling. It might be more than hundreds. I can't remember, Emil. You can correct me. But when you are online, they are coming for you. And I'm not saying because you're in some dodgy place. Wherever you are, you could be shopping at Woolworths. They are coming for you online. And suddenly you're going to be directed to so much clothing and Woolworths and da, 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 this. And suddenly your desire, your materialism is going to grow. They want you. And they want your Money and they want your, a piece of you. Satan wants a piece of your mind and he wants your uh, peace of mind. He wants both. And I can sometimes feel a little bit overwhelmed being a, the more I become aware of how much things are after what I f- want to feel is a nice safe space just for me. So this last point says, our minds are out. I can't tell you that you're not going to get stuff suggested to you or planted in there. But you know what I can tell you? Because you've been created in God's image, because you are like God, like this, as much as Satan would love to fill this thing and control it, he cannot. As much as the world would love to fill this and control it, they cannot. They can plant thoughts. They can suggest things. But the only one who decides what you think about and what you keep your mind on is you. Your mind 
is yours. And you get to choose what it stays on. You can't help with the suggestions. There'll be the odd thoughts, but you get to choose. Am I going to stick with this thought? Am I going to stay on this thought? You can keep your mind on what you choose to. That's such an important gospel truth, and that's autonomy given to you by God. He will not let the world and the enemy go further than suggesting things to you. Now, that's bad enough if you're unaware and you're letting it happen. But when you become aware and you want to take control and you want to go, right, let's apply what Paul's saying over here. Let's think about whatever is true and honorable and lovely and excellent and praiseworthy. You can do that because the control is with you. Anita was listening to a podcast and um, this woman had lost a baby and now she's She'd lost it tragically. Loss is always tragic, but I can't remember the exact details. But I remember just feeling, listening to the story, oh, it's awful what's happened to this young woman. And now God's using her through this loss to minister to others. And on this podcast, she gets asked, what is the biggest thing you learned from your ordeal and your tragedy? And she said this, and I never forgot it. And Anita and I both had my reactor almost pause and just take it in. And attend to it. She said, I can't control the things that happened to me. I can't control that I lost my baby. And I can't control some of the other things that are going to go wrong that are going to happen to me. But what I've learned, and it took me a while, was I get to choose whether I'm a victim. I don't have to be a victim because of what's happened to me. I might become a victim if I think of it all the time and go, I'm a victim, I'm a victim, I'm a victim. Then you will be a victim. She has learned. This is powerful. It's autonomy and it's your decision. She decided, I will not be a victim. And she ministered to me that morning. And this is what Paul is saying. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is lovely, whatever is excellent and praiseworthy, think about those things. And as much as the world's coming after you and as much as Satan's coming after you, and your mind's going to be filled with all sorts of negative thoughts, at the end of the day, what you choose to think about is yours, and no one can stop that from happening. Wow. So Paul says, well, actually, I'm going to close with two verses, not from Paul. John 17, verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Jesus praying for you and me. He knew our minds were going to be under attack. He knew we would think the wrong things often. So he prayed, sanctify them, which is um, improve them and uh, heal them and make them more like Christ. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You, in a world that's going to lie to you left, right, and center, guys, if you make this your day and you come to it believing there's truth here, this is a treasure trove of truth. Some of you have some of it and you fight off a lot of the lies with some of it. But Roland uh, Cohen used to say to me, a friend of mine, you say, Mark, I'm fighting Satan with a little um, dagger. I have one verse. (laughs) 
That's what he had at that stage of his Christian walk. I have one verse, and I, he, he'll say something, and I say that verse. And I jab him. Satan's not walking. Satan. Roland is not walking around with a dagger anymore. He's a man of God. He's spent much time in here collecting truth. And today he fights off this worldly thoughts and the enemy with much, much more. Sanctify them with the truth. Your word is truth. And my favorite verse, you come to my office for counseling, you'll see it on the wall. I look at it all the time. Isaiah 26 verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. You can't stop the negative thoughts, guys. And you can't stop the lies. You will hear them. But what you choose to stay on is up to you. And God promises, if you stay on me, you will have perfect peace. There's his promise on peace again. Because he trusts in you. Don't worry about it saying he, girls. It's he or she. You keep him or her in perfect peace whose mind has stayed on you because they trust in you. Paul says, to close, what you have learned and received. Receiving stronger than learning. We're very good at sitting in class and learning. You're learning this morning. I pray that it will be a receiving. Because receiving means you've, you get it. You don't just have it up here. You have it in your, your heart. And what you've heard and seen in, in me, in Paul, again, he's reminding you, I live this. Look at how I live. Seeing is much better than hearing. Paul gives you both. How did he do it? How did he become someone who could say, look at me and do what I do? He says, practice these things. And then it very cleverly flips it around. The verse before it said, if you um, pray about what you're anxious about and give it to God, then, then the peace of God is going to come and guard your heart. And if you read this too quickly, you might think it's saying the same thing. It's not. It's even better. Practice these things and the God of peace. You get much more than just his peace, guys. You get him. will be with you. We are going to end off with communion. What a wonderful way to have our minds set on Jesus and to attend to that. And why do we do communion? I loved how Dave explained the dedication. Sometimes we take for granted you understand. I'm going to try and be quite clear here. Jesus on his last night, he will die in the afternoon the next day. But on his last night, he has one last feast. One last supper. And when he's having the supper with his friends, he takes the bread and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body, broken for you. And every time you eat of this, you do it to remember me. Mind stayed. This um, is given to us as a way to help keep our minds stayed on Jesus. Remember me. Remember what I've done for you. When you take this juice, he took a cup. 
And he said, whenever you drink of this, this is my blood poured out for you. It hadn't happened yet. They didn't have a clue what he was talking about on that night. But they understood it afterwards. And every time they shared communion, they thought of Jesus dying on the cross that they saw with their own eyes, body broken, blood poured out for them. You do that to remember me. Should all of you come up and get it? I wish, but you shouldn't. This is only for those who believe. When Peter preached his first sermon, they were cut to the heart and they said, what are we meant to do? What must we do about this? He said, the Jesus, you crucified, God's raised him from the dead to show that he was telling the truth. And look what you've done. So they were cut to the heart. They said, well, what must we do now? And Peter said, repent and believe. If you come up here and you don't yet believe after repentance, having received the Spirit, then you are making a mockery of what you're taking. It would be far better for you to sit back and think about, do you really trust in Jesus? If you're sitting here going, I'm coming to church today because I hope God thinks that my church attendance will be good enough, I think you need to pause. If you're sitting here today going, I know I'm no good, but my hope is in Jesus and what he's done for me, then you're a believer. Then this is for you. I felt God say to me, Mark, preach the gospel. I'm trying to do it in two minutes. Preach the gospel. Don't tell them just to come up and get it. A young man went up to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said to him first, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Anyone here who thinks they're good, Jesus is saying, only God is good. You are trusting in the wrong thing if you're saying, but I'm not as bad as this person. I'm not as bad as this person. I'm not as bad as this person. It doesn't matter. You have fallen short of the glory of God, according to Romans uh, 3.23. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. The person who comes and takes this isn't coming saying, I'm good. They're coming saying, thank you, Jesus. If you didn't do this, I would have been done for. But because you did this, I believe. And now I'm saved. That's who comes to get the communion this morning. And here's the beautiful part. You can get it right. If, you, if you're not there, you can fix it in one moment. You can fix it right now. You know how you fix it? You say to God in your mind, Lord, I realize I'm not good enough. And I've been trying to do it my own way. I understand why you sent Jesus that he died on the cross for my sins, for me. And I believe. That prayer, in your own words, is what saves you. And that can happen right now, even while people are going to come up to get the communion. It might be you today, praying that for the first time quietly in your heart. Then you come. Then it's for you. So, if the servers can come up, uh, those that are going to help with the, the bread and the juice... Matt, if you don't mind coming and just playing. Matt's so enthralled by the preaching of the gospel. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Mark.
Mark's not meant to be working, but the diligent guy that he is. So because the room's so full, we've got uh, bread and juice up at the front, but we've also got two near the back, all right? So if you are near the back, there will be on your sides over there. This is how this is going to work. You're going to come up, take one of the breads, one of the cups of juice, going to go back to your seat, and you're going to think about Jesus. You're going to have your mind stayed on him. It's a beautiful moment to do that. 